yo, 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 yo. How are ya? I'm excited for this one. I just am. I don't even have a good reason. Just excited for this. Everybody in my home is asleep. I'm awake. Just made a hot cup of tea. Put on new sweats. All that means is I changed out of my old sweats and into new sweats. And I feel fresh again. That's the pandemic. Just slowly accumulating sweatpants. All right, clearly I've had some very weird realizations lately. Clearly, as we stumble around this world with our thoughts, with our personal philosophies, with our observations, of course there's going to be plenty of moments throughout every day where we just take a step back and go, what the fuck? What? What's going on? And I'm learning to embrace those moments, the mysteries of life. Instead of letting those many mysteries create anxiety, I'm just going to embrace those. So much we don't know. So much we will never know. So much. I'm reading this Oliver Sacks book right now, and I like to say that because it makes me sound smart. I'm reading this Oliver Sacks book, famous neurologist, you know, Oliver Sacks, the naturalistic historian. Of course, you know who I'm talking about, right? Oh, oh you don't? <laughs> you don't know Oliver Sacks? Well, I didn't either, but my wife is way smarter than me, and she has a bunch of Oliver Sacks books on the shelf. And I grabbed one. It's called Hallucinations. And she has recommended it for years. And it's fascinating. Without drugs, how our mind, our brains can hallucinate. We can create things that are not there. We can. And I'm just going through the table of contents. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm not going to lie to you. It's a little too heady for me. A little cerebral. And that's sad because I know Oliver Sacks is known for writing for the common man. Like, he's so smart. He's a beautiful mind. He's on a different level. Actually, he passed away about four years ago, but he was on a different level of intellect. And he wrote all these books that people were able to consume and learn about the brain. But I've tried a few of them already, and I like them, but I get disappointed with myself because I'm like, I know I'm not going to finish this. But the table of contents in the book Hallucinations, Altered States, Hearing Things, narcolepsy, the haunted mind, on the threshold of sleep, delirious, he describes that delirious state, phantoms, shadows, sensory ghosts. It's fascinating. However, you know I went right to the chapter called Visual Migraines. And there's a reason I'm so damn fascinated with migraines. And that is because I had one that I didn't think was a migraine. I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again just because Oliver Sacks captured what was going on in my brain that crazy day. Now, when I did see a neurologist for MDDS, because I have this weird disorder called mal de disembarkment syndrome. Look it up. We've talked about it. I can't go on long flights or boats. Okay. So I got the imbalance syndrome. I got the kid is always feeling like he's on a boat syndrome. But when I went to the neurologist, I also mentioned I had a migraine and the neurologist said, we like the neurologist community, are trying to get away from calling those migraine headaches because they're not headaches. So in this chapter by Oliver Sacks, just stay with me. I'm going to make this quick. He discusses what is actually happening. An aura is just going through your brain. An aura, A-U-R-A. Why did I spell it? I don't know. Like an electrical disturbance, a wave is passing across the visual parts of our brain. So for anybody that's actually had a real debilitating migraine, there's no way the first time it happened that they just said, oh yeah, this is a migraine. Instead, they probably think they're dying. So I'll tell my story in a moment. 
but the aura, and this is the feeling before the actual, you know, headache, vomiting, pain, sensitivity to light and noise, all that stuff comes later. That's the fun part. That's like the joyful part of a migraine. But the first part is so disorienting. You just go, okay, I'm probably dying right now. And he described it by just seeing zigzag shapes, subtle visuals of things that are not there, stuttering series of stills, he writes. Things get misplaced in the visual field so that objects become unintelligible. They're shiny geometric shapes, Oliver Sacks writes. Flashes of light, checkerboards, cobwebs, honeycombs. The scintillating scotoma is the chief visual effect. And then you start to get the numbness. So he's writing about it. And I go, oh, I wish I had read this book beforehand. So the year was 2015. I'm teaching government. It's the last period of the day. My first full year teaching, I got seniors about five minutes away from the bell. And the room just gets a little weird. Like everybody seems a little more distant than they really are. And I can't see out of my peripheral vision. Like nothing to the left, nothing to the right. That just goes fuzzy. But I could see in front of me. And then finally the bell rings, everybody clears out, and I'm alone in the room. And a friend of mine comes in, a fellow teacher, Danny, says, hey, how are you, Rosenberg? I'm like, I don't know, not good, not good, not good. He's like, okay, I'll let you, let you go. And I just sat at my desk as my vision turned pixelated, like tiling. And I dragged my ass to my car and drove this way over to my mom's, where I would drop my dog off during the school day to get Muggsy. And as I walk into her home, I notice that I can't read. Her magnets, books on her shelves, words on her art pieces, I can't read. I just can't. I know those are letters, but my cognitive abilities escaped me. And then I picked up a pen. This is like an intense part of a movie. I was wondering, could I write my name? And I couldn't. There's no way I thought I was having a migraine, of course. I think it's a stroke, right? It's got to be a stroke. And then it's just patches of fuzziness in my eyes and I look in the mirror and I'm like, what is going on? And that's when I felt the slow spread of numbness go over my face and down my neck and into my chest. And I go, here it is. Here it is. It was almost like crazy to the point where I just go, come on, let me have it. This is what it's all about. This is what instant death is going to be. I mean, I guess the hypochondriac And me just came out and screamed, bring on the tidal wave of destruction. And what do I do at that point? I get back in the fucking car like an idiot and drive to Kaiser. Two hours later, they say you had a migraine. I'm like, what? That's barely a story to tell people you had a migraine headache. But finally, Oliver Sacks in this book writes about all these hallucinations. It's interesting. I'm not going to even finish that chapter. Sorry, folks. I'm going to go back and find a comedian who has written a terrible memoir, and I'll read that. Or I will spend my time dissecting that Bee Gees documentary that you better watch. Have you watched it or not? Don't let it be a documentary that you'll get to. Don't let it be like, yeah, you know what? I guess I'll get to it at some point. That Bee Gees documentary on HBO. It's been calling your name. You're like, I like some of their music, I guess. What is it about? Staying Alive? Disco? Yeah, I know the Bee Gees. No, you got to watch the Bee Gees documentary because there's a few takeaways that go way beyond music. And it's a wonderful story. I mean, these brothers, Maurice, Robin, and Barry, they wrote over a thousand songs. Think about that number for a moment. Like if I ever heard somebody wrote 30 songs, I'd be so impressed. If I ever heard that somebody wrote 100 songs, I would be stunned. Like that's so many songs. 1,000 though, come on. Throughout the 60s and 70s, 
80s, into the 90s, so prolific, so legendary. Yet sometimes we minimize the Bee Gees and just think about their disco tracks, which are good, which are fine. But my main takeaway is the whole disco demolition because there's types of music that I don't like. There's types of music that you don't like, but it's not like we go, it needs to end. It doesn't make me angry. Like I'm not a fan of heavy metal. I've heard heavy metal just doesn't do it for me. I don't even say I hate heavy metal because I don't listen to it. I've heard it. It's not for me. I move on with my life. Country. I'm not so into country. I guess there's been a few country songs I like, just not really into country, but I don't have this visceral feeling in me where I just get so upset that country exists. Oh, I hate it. Country exists. I can't sleep. But disco caused some people, and this is before I was alive, caused some people to just get so upset that it had to end. It had to end. And that's all I knew about it. Disco demolition at Comiskey Park. As a sports fan, as a sports radio host, we would talk about the story in 1979. If you don't know the story, this is a true story. In 1979, it was a White Sox-Tigers doubleheader at Comiskey Park. Now, their attendance was shitty. They would draw about, you know, 12,000 fans for their home games. But they had a promotion with a local radio station to have fans come to the game with a disco record that was going to be blown up. A disco record was going to be destroyed in between the games. And there was a shock jock by the name of Steve Dahl. Uh, 97.9, Steve Dahl, shock jock, shock jock. Fuck this guy, Steve Dahl. He hates disco so much, it's disco demolition. They have to end it. So they're expecting, you know, 15,000, 20,000. 50,000 people show up and about 15,000 more people sneak in. And it becomes total mayhem. If you don't know this story, you could look it up on YouTube and check out what happened. So after the first game, Steve Dahl comes on the field and he hates disco. And everybody in the stands hates disco. And they're throwing their records on the field and they're blowing up these records. Big explosion. People are cheering. And then people storm the field. You're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of people running on a baseball field. They had to forfeit the game. There was no game two. Tons of arrests. Tons of injuries. And it never totally made sense to me. I just thought, wow, that's an interesting time. But the documentary shed some light on it. And there was an usher at the game that day. And the usher is now a grown man. He's a pioneer of house music, apparently. Maybe he was even a producer on this documentary, but his name was Vince Lawrence. And Vince Lawrence said, I remember that day vividly. People were showing up to Comiskey Park, not with disco records, but some of them were bringing Stevie Wonder, Curtis Mayfield, Marvin Gaye, black R&B records. And what Vince Lawrence said in the documentary was this was a racist book burning and a homophobic book burning because disco, its roots are in the gay clubs of New York City or some of the black underground clubs. So the origins of disco go back to this pocket of society that was told you can't dance here. That was actually a law in New York City clubs. You can't dance. Same sex. You can't dance. I'm not talking about same-sex marriage. I'm talking about if you're the same sex, you can't dance together. It's illegal. How sad is the history of this country in many ways? I mean, what, what is that law? I'm not gay, but I've danced with some of my friends. If I'm popping and locking with a buddy, uh, a little run DMC comes on. What about kid and play? I can't do the kid and play dance with my boys. We're getting arrested. No same-sex dancing outlawed it's banned and of course separate clubs opened 
and in the gay clubs, disco was hot. Disco was hot. And in black clubs, disco was it. Not just the Bee Gees, but we're talking about Donna Summer, Diana Ross, Gloria Gaynor, Casey and the Sunshine Band, Rick James. Michael Jackson had plenty of disco hits. Frankie Valli had some disco hits. I mean, there's plenty of artists you can name right now who may not just be known for disco, but they had some disco hits. Well, apparently, I guess, a large percentage of Americans were not upset with the sound of disco, but that it represented the black and gay communities having a sound. And disco demolition, at least the way this documentary spins it, was a homophobic, racist, book-burning, some white supremacist rally. There's no charm to this story. Anytime somebody tells the story of disco demolition from now on, it's going to be so ugly. And I know before this, it almost had some folklore that always made me smile. Like, wow, at a baseball game, 50,000 baseball fans come out for dollar tickets and bring a disco record, then they blow up the records. And I'm thinking to myself, I guess it's a great promotion for the White Sox to get some fans in the game. I've seen tons of teams pull off wild promotions just to get some fans in the stands. And some of those stories are fun, charming stories of baseball history. But this one is so fucking ugly. It makes you sad that there were a lot of people who just brought black records. The music of some of the greatest legendary black singers was just thrown onto the field and blown up. God damn. And let's also be honest. Disco's fine. Who gets angry at disco? It's almost like a joke, right? Even if I say that name, disco, what's in your mind right now? A shiny ball, people in bell bottoms doing twirls, pointing to the sky, wacky choreography, Studio 54, people coked up, just having a blast. It went way beyond people disliking the sound. It was a threat. Now you see, you can probably tell by the way I use my walk, I'm a woman's man, like no time to talk. Music loud, you know, women warm. I've been kicked around since I was born and now it's all right. You know, it's okay. And you may look the other way. And we can try to understand the New York Times effect on man. Whether you're a brother or whether you're mother, stay in a line. Stay in a line. Feel the city breaking and everybody's shaking. We're staying alive. We're staying alive. Nah, 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 nah. Staying alive. Staying alive. Nah, nah, nah. Ah, uh, staying alive. You know, it's a simple story. Well, now I get low and I get high. And I can't get either. I really try. Got the wings of heaven on my shoes. I'm a dancing man. I just can't lose. You know, it's all right. It's okay. I live to see another day. How could you actually dislike that? It's just silly shit. That's disco. It's just silly shit. You hear a disco song, you just smile. You're like, that's silly shit. If you hear disco and you go, God, I hate that the black community and the gay community dance to this at clubs in the 70s, then you have a serious issue and planet Earth should just open up and suck you in. That's all. That's all. That's not a sports story. That's not a Chicago White Sox story. How embarrassed were those players? They had to forfeit the game. The Tigers are like, I'm good. Start the bus. And then radio stations wouldn't play the BG songs. What? Explain that to me. 
The Bee Gees kept making music and radio stations were like, no, no. Here the Bee Gees were not even gay or black. And radio stations were just like, still no, too close. It's too close. This is the 1970s I'm talking about. Is that a little too recent? Make you feel a little dirty right now, knowing how close we are to that. And that's when a lot of the music the Bee Gees were writing was just being written for other artists. They started writing for Barbara Streisand, Diana Ross, Dolly Parton, Kenny Rogers, Celine Dion. Watch the documentary. I'm not going to give everything away. Just watch the documentary. Let the boy sleep in your bed. He's already bringing your mail in. Let the boy sleep in your bed. All right, but like I said, that's not a sports story. I do have a sports story, though, to bring up right now. And of all the stories in the news, this one went way under the radar. But Dick Callahan died over the weekend. Dick Callahan was the longtime PA announcer for the Warriors and A's. Dick Callahan was wonderful. This chubby, bald guy who had a velvet voice. Did the Warriors games for 20 years before a little controversy. Controversy? That word is not easy for me. Before a little controversy showed him the door in the Chris Cohan days. Chris Cohan, what a piece of shit. Oh my God. Warriors fans have got to appreciate Joe Lacob. Chalk that up for the obvious statements in episode 126. Warriors fans must really enjoy Joe Lacob championships. As opposed to Chris Cohan, just dog shit every year and got rid of Dick Callahan. At least I think that's the story. So when Dick Callahan got bounced from the Warriors, Roy Steele, the voice of God, the PA announcer, now batting third baseman, Carney Lansford, the great voice of the Oakland A's. Roy Steele passed away, and Dick Callahan got to take over the A's games. And it didn't do it for me as much. I love Dick doing basketball. I love Dick doing basketball, but doing the A's, I thought it was just okay. Because the shoes were too big to fill. Roy Steele is the greatest PA announcer of all time. In my opinion, when I was growing up going to A's games, it had to be one of the factors of why I enjoyed A's games more than Giants games. And I think in 1989, even though I really liked both teams, the Battle of the Bay, look what I was given. My earliest baseball memories. I got Will Clark, Matt Williams, Kevin Mitchell, Rick Russell on one side of the bay. Then I got McGuire, Conseco. Ricky and Dave Henderson, Terry Steinbach, Dave Stewart, the Eck on the other side of the bay. So it was almost too much, too much good stuff for an 8, 9, 10-year-old in those days. But I think I was leaning more towards being an A's fan because the in-game experience before the renovation, that ugly Mount Davis bullshit, an A's game in the late 80s, oh, heaven. And the voice of Roy Steele, please rise for the national anthem. Now batting catcher Ron Hassey. Now batting second baseman, Mike Gallego. Who was this guy? What was his voice? Just like truly the voice of God. But Dick Callahan was my legend because more than A's and Giants games, Warriors games, that was my sacred territory with my dad growing up. And I was too spoiled. I realized that. I think I realized that at the time as well. But now as I grow up to think that I got to go to about 10, 15 home games a year, sit in second row right by the Warriors bench. It was the whole experience. It wasn't just the game. Although, yes, of course it was the game. I mean, it was so much the game that I remember not being a good student because I was just thinking of Warriors basketball in class. The teacher sounding like the teacher from Peanuts. I'm just thinking about Mitch Richmond, Tim Hardaway, Chris Mullen. I'm just thinking about the Warriors in class. And this lasts through middle school and even high school. That's how warped my brain was. I was too into the Warriors. Like I needed a therapist, I bet. Because... 
There's something about being a fan that's good and then a fanatic. That's, whoa, whoa, too much. I was a Warriors fanatic. Fanatic. Thinking about the Warriors, breaking down box scores, caring about stats. And the voice behind it all was Dick Callahan. He did the games from 82 to 2001. And Dick Callahan had great catchphrases, traveling and shooting too. True Warriors fans know who I'm talking about. But the in-game experience is so enhanced with a good PA announcer. And that's what he was. And I remember at age 10 getting his autograph. And he wrote in my program, Shooting Too. I still have that program somewhere in my mom's garage. Loved the guy. Loved Dick Callahan. And it actually made me appreciate what he did for a living. And I watched a little piece on him on YouTube. Turns out he was an insurance broker, I guess, by day. And then he drove over to the Coliseum at night to do the Warriors games. What a life. No cause of death listed. When I, when I read an obituary like that, I'm just like, COVID, right? COVID. COVID took Dick Callahan. That's someone to celebrate. God, was I a bad student just daydreaming. I was thinking about the, the, other, the, the other day. I was thinking about that the other day. All right? Here's why I was thinking about it. When I say I was a bad student, you know, probably like a 3.3, 3.4 GPA got me to San Diego State. Then I guess at San Diego State, maybe like a 3.5, 3.6. I did well. I did well enough. But I don't remember being so stimulated in classrooms. I just don't, which is weird that I'm a high school teacher because I am so impressed with 15 and 16-year-olds that are just attentive and they participate and they're absorbing the material and they're insightful and they say interesting things. I find myself saying that out loud, like, I just love this. I love these classes. I almost like it so much that I forget that a lot of kids are suffering because remote learning is so undesirable and it's bad for their brains not to be able to socialize on campus. But something happened this semester where I just have so many good kids. I'm not only impressed, but I start to think back at myself. I go, was I even grasping anything? Like anything. These kids are showing such a propensity to understand the curriculum and the units that we're discussing in this class. And I'm almost, I don't want to say envious, but I do think it would have been cooler if I cared a little more in high school. I think it would have been a little cooler if I could have looked back and said, yeah, I really seized the day. No, I was just thinking about Spreewell. Why would he choke PJ Carlissimo? I was just thinking about how shitty it was that they drafted Todd Fuller when they could have had Kobe Bryant. And I was thinking of Dick. Dick Callahan. Shooting... At forward from St. John's, number 17, Chris. Should I just do this? I could do the whole starting five. Mullen. At guard in his second year from UTEP, number 10, Tim Hardaway. This is the nerdiest shit you're ever going to hear, but at the other guard position in his third year from Kansas State, number 23, Mitch Richmond, who would be traded for Billy Owens and would fuck up my life. There goes Run TMC. Come on. Let Don Nelson be the coach and the GM. And I'm supposed to honor the memory of Nelly? I know the guy's not dead, but sometimes we talk about Don Nelson like he was such a legend because he had so many wins. And really, he traded Mitch Richmond for Billy Owens. Huh? Come on. Who's with me? Who's still upset? Anybody? All right, let's move on. Let's move on with our lives. One person I should bring up, though, if we're talking about PA announcers, is the great Frank Anthony. Early in my radio career, I got a chance to work with Frank. And Frank was like a legendary morning radio guy. Not a shock jock like that moron Steve Dahl in Chicago. Not a shock jock, but just a part of a really successful morning team. 
in San Diego. And then he did more imaging. He still did FM DJ work, but imaging like he was the voice of commercials. At Donovan's Steak and Chop House, the filet mignon is served hot off the grill. Frank had a great voice. And when Petco Park first opened the Padres' new ballpark, he was their PA announcer. And we became such good buddies. What a great guy. Like every morning, have a cup of coffee together. He would tell me a joke. That's an old school friendship where someone tells you a real joke. When's the last time one of your friends told you a joke? Is that lost? Is that going to be a lost art amongst my generation and younger generations? We don't really officially tell jokes. Hey, all right, a rabbi and a priest going, we don't do that anymore. But Frank did that. Frank had jokes, good jokes. And he even dog sat for me a couple of times. So he knows Muggsy, but I digress. Frank would let me come up in the booth with him for Padres games. I just get to watch him. Now batting second baseman, Mark Loretta. Loretta. And I loved it. It was so much more interesting than the game, just watching Frank work. Love that man. Great man. I just texted him recently. He plays the shit out of the guitar. Let me tell you that right now. Big Frank. Man loves the Italian wines and the Napa wines. He doesn't discriminate. Guitar skills and a great radio voice? Shit. On this podcast, you never know who I'm going to honor. I'm certainly not going to be honoring Jared from Subway. And if that sounds random, which it is, if that sounds too random for you, I'll explain that I'm not going to honor anything about Subway. Because I feel duped. Did you see this story in the news recently? There's a lawsuit in California. There's a lawsuit in California complaining that Subway doesn't even use tuna in their tuna sandwich. And this is sad news for somebody like me because that's my go-to. I mean, we all have our go-to at Subway, right? I mean, sometimes you might change it up. Like sometimes I'll go chicken breast. Sometimes I'll try the new special, roast beef and cheddar. But usually I get in there and I say, give me that sloppy tuna. Hey, pal, slap it on there. Uh Uh-huh. Toasted? Eh, no thanks. American cheese, yeah, pickle, lettuce, tomato, uh-huh, pepperoncini, onion, a little salt and pepper. Okay, that, that's good. That's good. That's me at Subway. You got to say that's good real quick or else they'll go heavy on the salt and pepper. I'll cut them off real quick. Just a little salt and pepper. That's good. That, 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 that's good. What the fuck are you doing? Calm down. Calm down behind the glass. Years and years and years. Years and years and years of eating tuna at Subway. I mean, I knew it wasn't healthy. I knew they mixed in so much mayo that I was probably just eating more mayo than tuna. But guess what, folks? I likely wasn't even eating any tuna. You gotta love how litigious this country is. This is a real lawsuit. And you know Jared's happy that he's no longer the only scandalous part of Subway history. That fucking Jared. His scandal is so bad. If you're a parent, you can't name a baby boy Jared anymore. That's all people will think about. Oh, Jared? You named your kid Jared? Like Subway Jared? All right, so the lawsuit that was filed in the U.S. District Court actually took some tuna from Subway, ran it through some lab tests, and they realized there's zero tuna in this. What's weird is the plaintiffs did not reveal what ingredients they did discover. Like, if it's not tuna, then what is it? So the plaintiffs who filed this suit, they just said, it's a mixture of various concoctions that do not constitute tuna, yet they're blended together in a way that appears to be tuna. And they want a lot of money for this. They really want a lot of money. And Subway's like, yes, it is tuna. It's wild caught. Our employees go fishing every morning and they bring in the best tuna. So it's getting pretty ugly. 
I love how Subway has a spokesperson. Subway spokesman Harvey Nutsacula says, We stand by our tuna recipe. Each day we bring in wild-caught Pacific Ocean tuna. No, you don't, Harvey. Just admit it. I would love it if Subway just released a statement and said, You got us. What are you gonna do? It's America. It's a weird thing to say, right? It's America. What do you even mean? You could just do some shady shit and just go, Look, it's America. Here's my takeaway. Um, I don't care. I don't care. It tasted good. All those years, it tasted good. I had a fake relationship with Subway. I thought it was tuna. They weren't giving me tuna. But we enjoyed our relationship. They enjoyed me because I would give them American currency. I would give them dollar bills. And they would give me something that wasn't tuna, but tasted enough like tuna that it made me happy. And it was affordable. And it was delicious. So there's zero part of me that gives a shit that I was eating probably carp, sable, maybe styrofoam. I don't know. No regrets though. I'm fine with it. If you could fool me, if you could fool me, I'm not going to go back in time and get upset. Like Jack in the Box, those two tacos. Is that real ground beef in there? Probably not. Would I ever sue them? No. Would I ever get mad at them? Jack, you know, Jack, you know, I wouldn't get mad at you. We had fun. Those 2 a.m. nights coming in bleary-eyed. I have two tacos for a dollar and jumbo jack with cheese. And you guys have curly fresh? Can I have that too? And just a big bag of greasy jack-in-the-box on my lap with my eyes closed as I fade away into 40 more ounces of freedom. 40 ounces to freedom. Yeah, no. No lawsuit. What are we suing people for? Was there emotional damage? You were that connected to tuna? What did they do to you? Or, I guess, maybe your diet says... You can only have tuna. <laughs> I can. My doctor says I can only eat tuna fish and I can't eat any concoctions that aren't tuna fish. So this is really a traumatic ordeal. Couldn't make it up. You can't make this shit up. Actually, you could. I could have just made all that shit up. I love when people go, you can't make this up. Yeah, you can. You can make a lot of shit up. All right, I'll close with this. And sadly, this is true. But throughout the pandemic, my wife and I have been taking our daughter to the same playground, the same playground, the same park, the same park. We need to change it up a little bit. So we went into central Santa Fe. Oh, yeah. We went into the city, went to Boyd Park. I know Boyd Park. I grew up at Boyd Park. My mom would take me to Boyd Park after the library. Good times. These are the good times. More disco. But I was telling my wife, my wife's not from Marin County. She's not from Santa Fe. So I was like, we're going to Boyd Park today. And, you know. We're going to see some homeless people. That's part of it. It's a little seedy, but it's beautiful. And my daughter just loved it. Big castle, big slide, great swings, good fun. Right as we walk in, I just see a bunch of little girls her age, which is so nice during the pandemic. If everybody's masked up at the playground, you can say, hey, there's your friends. You know, convince her that those are your friends. I say that about strangers all the time to my daughter. Hey, look at your friends are here. Just to convince her that life's normal. You have friends. But we get there and it was great. And then there was this one girl who was probably twice my daughter's age. So if my daughter's three, this is probably a six-year-old. And she was sweet, you know, telling my daughter about her dolls and telling my daughter about her favorite color. Kids talking about their favorite color. It sounds like they're discussing heavy business issues, right? Well, I like purple and I also do like light blue, but I don't really love red anymore. And the other kid's just like intently listening. Uh-huh, uh-huh. 
Well, you know, that's interesting because I like brown, okay, but I don't love it when it's dark. I kind of like a lighter brown, and I really have gotten into orange. Kids discussing colors. What the hell? Why is it so interesting? So they got into a color talk, and then at one point, I just see in the distance on this walking trail, about four homeless guys with their sleeping bags and backpacks and baggy jeans and their beards, you know, totally expected. These four homeless guys just walking down the trail, minding their own business. And the six-year-old girl who's playing with my three-year-old daughter screams, thieves, thieves, are you thieves? I was like, no, 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 no. What the, what the fuck is going on? Thieves, are you guys thieves? Just this innocent white blonde girl screaming thieves and then actually asked, are you guys thieves? I was like, what are your parents saying in the house? Or what books are you reading? What TV shows is she associating these homeless guys with? She was so curious and alarmed. Thieves! Like the books. I just wanted to bury myself in the sand. Oh no, I can't be associated with this. Oh no. Thieves! I hope those guys didn't hear her. Those poor guys. Oh God. So I can't go to Boyd Park anymore, and it has nothing to do with the homeless guys, but that six-year-old girl, holy shit. Avoid. Avoid. I'll end with this. My wife won't like this, but is anybody else married to a sheet stealer, a cover stealer, in the middle of the night? Your sheets, your covers, your blankets, they just slowly, slowly escape your body. I go pee in the middle of the night, I don't know, twice, maybe thrice. I know it's a lot. Do I have an issue? Let's not get into that. But I get up go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and then I come back to bed and the sheets are just kind of more on her side. And I think she's still asleep. It seems strategic. I don't think it's intentional. It's subtle. But I wake up, no sheets. Anybody else married to a sheet stealer? I know you are. And if you're not, you're probably the sheet stealer listening right now. It's fine. It's fine. I'm just wondering. Just a part of life. If you're married right now, you're either the sheet stealer, you know who you are. You tug it quietly, right? Like one inch around 11 p.m., couple more inches of sheets to your side around 3 a.m. You know what you're doing. And by the morning, it's just like, fuck you. Enjoy the chills. No, it's not malicious. It's not malicious. It's marriage. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Okay. That's episode 126. Go ahead. Leave a rating on iTunes, won't you now? Won't you? As I beg, as I plead, as I declare my love for you. But that's sincere love. That's not a joke. That's real love. What we're building here after 126 episodes, I mean, that's got to be real. What else have you done 126 times in your life? Actually, that could be a long list. What a dumb point I'm ending with. However, I'll just say this episode is in the books, and I'll talk to you soon. Eric Dampier! The ass is, is, is a sound that I've always enjoyed, so I came up with the shooting too, and it's caught on. I mean, it's... Uh, High school referees tell me the high school uh, PA announcers all over the area use it. For the Warriors, number 21, Danny Fortson, shooting two.